I mean, I can remember it was in high school about the time I started learning some of the things that my, my personality I tend to gravitate towards. Specifically, what I tended to gravitate towards then was history and not so much math. Right? My senior year, I took this European history class where I can remember hearing this story, and it was something that stuck with me ever since that time. To where as I came and I read this passage, as I prepared for this morning, this moment in my history class, listening, and she was a saint to Mrs. Strickland teach me. I remembered this painting. Let me show you guys a painting real quick. Right, while we grab that painting, what what we're looking at once it comes up is there's this picture, right? It it was this story that she told us about Napoleon, right? So you can see it here. It's a bit granular. We tried to find the best image that we could. It's this moment of Napoleon's coronation. Now, some of you, you may remember us from history, or you may have had the privilege of actually getting to see this painting itself. It's 33 feet wide, 20 feet tall. It's beautiful, right? But it's this moment of Napoleon's coronation. So if you know anything about past history or anything like that, especially during that time period, this would have been in 1799, but years before that, the the Pope, right? The Pope there, you see him sitting right behind Napoleon. He's holding his fingers out kind of like this as a demonstration of anointing. That's Pope Pius XII, Up to that point, kings, when they were crowned, they'd call in the pope because the pope would come as a form of spiritual authority overseeing the Catholic Church. We're not going to do a big history lesson here. They would come in the pope as a demonstration of spiritual authority and how God had come and bestowed this person as king, as queen. The pope would come and place the crown on the head of the king. Or in this instance, Napoleon the self-proclaimed emperor. Now, what's unique about this moment is this is the first time in history where at this moment when Napoleon goes, he's meant to be on bended knee in the middle of this ceremony, to the Pope would have symbolically placed the crown on his head. Napoleon stood up. He took the crown from the Pope and he put it on his own head, symbolically showing, I don't need your spiritual authority. I take my throne. I take my crown. Now, if you know anything about Napoleon, he he rose through the ranks as part of the French Revolution. He then leads his own coup, becomes self-proclaimed emperor, and there's this moment where he's showing the world, I don't need you, I've taken. And the way he symbolically did that, even there with the Pope, even there with the church. Now, the amazing part of this is there's a second image, and I didn't know this till this week when I was studying. Right, this artist, his name is Jacques-Louis, I'm going to say David, I don't know how to pronounce that if I was French. If you're French here, I'm sorry I have a terribly in uncultured accent towards it. But he paints this, but the first thing he did is, like any good artist, he rendered a bunch of sketches right at the beginning. And then what he's going to do is he's going to piece together this masterpiece. Let me show you his first sketch. It's a sketch where he comes, and with the Pope, Napoleon turns his back on the Pope. He grabs the sword, demonstrating, you don't give it, I take it. I don't need your crown. I claim my throne. And he puts the crown on his own head. That's what this moment symbolized to him, is he wanted to recreate it for history. But this artist quickly came to realize, hey, this probably won't go all that well with Napoleon. 
Like it probably won't look that great if he just does that. So instead of depicting that, but still attempting to honor the historicity of the moment, he shows Napoleon instead crowning his queen. Supposedly also the Pope in the original painting he was depicted as with his hands being crossed in his lap. Almost as this demonstration of, I do nothing here. And Napoleon trying to show, no, 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 no. You should be thankful for me. You should be glad that you don't give me a crown, but I take the crown. Napoleon had him repaint it to where his hands are demonstrated in a posture of anointing. I, I can remember sitting there in high school thinking back on this moment, thinking back on learning all about this in Mrs. Strickland class and thinking to myself, this guy was bold. Like, can you imagine breaking centuries of tradition to having the moment and taking the crown yourself and thinking, and we all know Napoleon Complex, right? The guy was not known for his humility, okay? Right, but we all know in that moment the brokenness in the heart to say, you don't give, I'll take my throne. The reason that came to mind as I spent time looking at this text is because where we are in the book of James. Where we are in the book of James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's been writing this letter, this section, especially chapter four, appealing to us against this internal sense of what we Christians would call worldliness this desire to almost, by faith, straddle the fence. It's building this momentum to where all of a sudden at the end of this, where James last week, he's teaching us about the heart of submission. This week, he's gonna draw out of us this reality that we, at times, we try to take the throne. We try to come and self-proclaim ourselves as lawgiver. Self-proclaim ourselves as judge is final authority. To whereas I reflected on this text, the part that I realized is, no, I don't have some amazingly historical moment that's gonna be painted in the same way Napoleon takes the crown. But I do that in my own life. I come, instead of yielding to the spiritual authority of God, his will, I come and I take the crown. I say things like, my will. Like if you're here and you're a Christian, what this looks like in your life, any instance of it would be self-righteousness. And if you've been tracking with us, James has been railing against self-righteous. He's been going after the heart of that. And you'll see that come out in the text today where you really see two ideas, the reality of how we as Christians, we have this brokenness in us that has this sense where we still, man, try to get ahead by looking down on others, feeling better by making them the lesser. This self-imposed righteousness, we take the crown. We do it with our words. We do it with the posture of the heart. You ever had someone, and even if you're here, like, like a Christian, make you feel less than? like make you feel like a dignity that was yours, you were robbed of. I have. I've also done that to others too. Church, we're gonna look at this today because James, he's almost, to, to proverbially say it, he's putting the nail in the coffin. 
where he's talking about the worldliness that exists in Sunday gatherings all across the globe. And he's saying, man, we got to put it to death. You and I have no right to a throne. There's one king. We submit. He needs no help. And that's what we're going to learn today. Now, if you're here, there's this fun saying I've always really enjoyed personally. Uh, There's this fun saying, especially if you're not a believer in Christ, maybe you've used this. Or if you're a Christian, you you wrestle with this. We're going to unpack it today. The phrase, man, only God can judge me. Any 50 Cent fans in here? Yeah, honestly, not really me either. But he's got this massive tattoo right across. He's a rapper. If you don't know who he is, he's a rapper. This massive tattoo right across his chest, only God can judge me. Right? And if you're here and you don't believe in God, and if you're here and you're a Christian, we're going to talk about what does that actually mean? Is that true? Here's the answer. Yes. And yes. If you're here and you're wrestling with faith, here's one of the things that I pray that you see. The brokenness where Christians come and they can make you feel less than. I, I, I can make you feel not cherished or worthy or broken. There's a God in heaven who loves you, who died for you, who came to free you. But if you reject his love, if you deny him, he will honor your wishes. And in eternity, you will meet him as judge. And he will judge the righteous from the unrighteous. I was in a conversation this past week talking specifically to to the reality of this. And how someone was saying, man, how, how, what happens for folks who are part of the homosexual community, same-sex community, and if, same gender, if, if you're here and that's you, welcome, man. There's no difference in the deviation of sin between heterosexual sin, homosexual sin. My broken tendencies of perversion and the broken tendencies of perversion in another way, sin is sin, I was in this conversation, and this person saying, well, man, but God, like, he wants them to stop that action. He wants them to stop that action and just commenting with them and sharing the truth. Man, if that person dies without faith in Jesus Christ, when they meet God in heaven, God's not going to ask them about their homosexual actions. God won't ask you about your heterosexual sinful actions, your greed, your pride, your lust, your self-righteousness. He's not going to address that. What he'll first come and address is this. Did you believe in me? Did you believe I died? Do you believe I love you? A lack of faith is what deviates in eternity. Not certain actions. Why does that matter? Because as you see in this text, what is also true is that while we are not on the throne, God is. And one day, there's only one thing that will separate people the forgiven or the not. That's it. Let's see that in this text this morning. 
If you got a Bible, turn to James chapter 4. We're just looking at two verses. It's James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. All right, we're going to be looking at this as we continue to examine this theme. We're going to look at it in two ways. The first is going to be we. And when I say we, I'm talking to us, church. Those of us who call us Christians, we are not the law. We are not the law. The second theme we'll see is we are not the judge. We are not the judge. To remind us where we've been, James, he's combating this internal sense of worldliness. Worldliness comes any time where I try to put myself over God. That's why last week, James, he drilled to this theme of how the Christian life, it's a life of submission. It's a life where we come and we say, God, your way is better. You know more, I submit. And James is building on, hey, how does the submitted heart act? And he's going to draw this contrast. It doesn't call itself the law. And it doesn't act as if it's a final judge. We're going to read verse 11. If you've got a Bible, read with me. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So the first idea we want to look at at this is we kind of break that down, because James, he kind of jumps around to a few different places. The first theme is we, we are not the law. James, he's really going to attack that in two different ways. He's going to have to go after the reality of speaks evil against, and he's going to go after judges. Speaks evil against, if you know the book of James that you've tracked with us, then you remember back in chapter 3, we talked about how death and life, like like what we say, how we communicate to each other, it has the power of both death and life, and how we as Christians, ones who know life, we are meant to speak life. So James, while he's talking here about speaks evil against, yes, he's saying, don't be a jerk, don't tear down, but more specifically, He's speaking to slander. He's speaking to defamation. Here's, here's what I mean by that. To, to slander someone is anytime you or I go and we make disparaging, negative, false claims. Right now, what that can look like is obviously where you come and you just create an absolute lie about someone to tear them down, to hurt them. Why? Because of maliciousness in you. But where it can also happen is a lot of times where you come and you hear something about someone, something negative. And that form of brokenness over time in the momentum of gossip gets embellished or it gets made more out of to where what was at once minor and false, perhaps done intentionally or unintentionally, over time, picks up momentum like a snowball rolling down a hill. So all of a sudden, you and me can slander. We can speak evil. We can be hurtful in how we do that. And the amazing part, too, is a lot of times what James is specifically going after, he's saying this takes place in the church. He's saying it happens in my heart. He's saying it happens in yours. He's saying that you and I have this tendency to look around the room as we try to take the throne and tear 
others down. You see it in his language of brothers, brother, brother. Now the church has this cannibalistic side to it that Jesus Christ came to set us free from. What's the second way he's talking about the ways that we take the law into our own hands? It says judges. Judges. Now this is what leads to a lot of the confusion. And we'll break this down right at the end of the passage. But judges here. That word in your New Testament, it can mean condemn or it can mean evaluate, critique, help, develop, change, right? A distinction between a moral right and wrong. James Bean condemns here. It's that moment when you and I have that heart posture where we kind of look around and there is the, well, at least I'm doing better than them. Or we look down on another for broken choices. Where every time we do that, we don't extend the grace that Christ gave us. Like, here's what's true of you, Christian. Here's what's true of me. There's sin in your life. That sin was deserving of an eternal separation, but instead of getting condemnation for it, you got grace. You've been given forgiveness and freedom. We judge others anytime we come, and there's that condemning mindset. How could they? Why, why would they parent that way? Oh, surely if they were serious about finances, they wouldn't have bought that. Can, did you hear what their child did? I'm so glad to hear it's not us. Like, did you see the way he treated her? Like, each one of those, yes, there's language, but there's this heart motive behind it. This heart motive of looking down. I've always loved this phrase, Christians, they can't think too much of themselves. They can't think too highly. Why? Because God in heaven had to die for your wicked sin. But Christians can't think too lowly of themselves, like false deprecation. Why? Because God in heaven loves you so much, he had to die for you. You're worthy. And us knowing this worth, how do we not come and speak life, not speak evil against, give worth, not tear down in condemnation? Be the folks who when folks come and they speak against, we seek to bring peace, not add momentum to it. And then he tells us why this matters so much. It's this theme. We are not the law. He goes on, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. He's saying here's why this is such a serious thing. Because anytime you and I speak evil against another, we're speaking evil against the law. What, what does James mean? There? The law there, it's a summary of the teachings of God, his character, his nature, his, his theme throughout the Old Testament. One of the things I love is when Jesus is asked about this. Right, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me. It's six verses, a little longer. It's in Matthew 22, where Jesus is asked, hey, which characteristics of the law matter most? And Jesus is gonna show why, how when we speak evil against, we violate the law itself. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So Jesus, he's come. He's had this interaction with the Sadducees, religious leaders of the day. It does not go well for Sadducees. Jesus is shown to be Messiah, right? And then all of a sudden, there's this other religious group, Pharisees. They show up. All of a sudden, they see Jesus building in a righteous momentum. So they almost say, okay, who's the smartest one here? All right, this guy, right? Hey, you go ask him a trap trick question. And they appoint this lawyer, and they send him before to question God. Lawyer says to Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and all the prophets. When we slander, when we speak evil against, what we effectively do is we deny the power of the law in our own life. As Christians who've been called out of darkness into glory, a God in heaven who comes and says, represent the grace that I've given you. Speak to them as I speak to you. Love them as I love you. Forgive them as I forgive you. And when we speak evil against, we come to that law and we say, no, I have my own law. And in this moment, righteousness looks like me coming and tearing down rather entrusting the throne to you. We speak evil against the law. What do we do by that? We judge the law. Judging specifically, again, it carries the connotation of there's a superior and inferior. When we come and we demonstrate, hey, God, they're not worth your time, or hey, God, they're not doing as well, or hey, God, they're behind, or, or the person, man, can you believe they keep asking these questions in community group? Like, can you believe that they can't get over the same problems? I gave them one Bible verse. You'd think that would fix it. That's not how that works. Right? But this posture of condemnation, in that moment, what we've done, we've condemned the law by saying God's called to love, care, support, and nurture them. No, no, that's not the right move. Let's leave them out. As we do that, we become the very thing James is teaching against. You see it towards the end of this passage. You see it right here. They speak evil against the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. If you've been tracking with us, the, the theme, the thesis statement for this entire book is James the younger brother of Jesus Christ, the one who missed it, that Christ had to come back from the grave so he could fully understand who his big brother was. He's appealing to you and me. He's saying the best life is a life where you go all in. The best life is a life that's marked by a love, a trust, and an all-out obedience. Being a doer. And James is saying that when your heart, when my heart drifts towards, you know what, the law's missing it. I'm going to take the law into my own hands. When our heart drifts towards that, what we've immediately stopped doing is being a doer of the law. 
the very thing itself that James came to instill and to bring life. Why do we do that? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think we have that broken tendency in our flesh. I think we all have a desire to say, hey, God's missing it. Let me take the crown. I had the chance last night, watched a movie with my family. It's actually a pretty good movie. It's called Highwaymen. It's all about basically the, I was about to say the capture, ultimately bringing to justice Bonnie and Clyde. I'd always heard about that, famous, but it was this movie where essentially, if you don't know a bit of the background, bank robbers, real bad guys, all that kind of stuff. They go, yeah, and yeah, bank robbers is gender neutral. Guy was correcting me, but no, it's gender neutral, right? Where they come and they go and they seek to capture these guys. Right at that point, right about the time, Bonnie and Clyde, this is J. Edgar Hoover, FBI is really coming on the scene, the G-Man is there. They've been tracking them for years. Bonnie and Clyde had killed up to 13 police officers, taken countless amounts of money from banks, and to where they just weren't getting it done to where two Texas Rangers were put on the case. Now this movie sets it up as a true story. You can go research the facts. Right, where these two Texas Rangers, all the while, there's over a thousand different members of the FBI tasked on it. They essentially begin to track down Bonnie and Clyde, but there's this moment where they realize Bonnie and Clyde aren't just staying in the state of Texas. They're leaving the state of Texas, and as they leave, they leave their technical jurisdiction. They're not supposed to go chase him in Oklahoma. They're not supposed to go chase him in Kansas. They're not supposed to go chase him in Louisiana. And these two rangers decide and they say to themselves, they're not getting it done. Therefore, we will. And there's this great movie, they chase him down, Kevin Costner, and it's pretty engaging, right? They find him in Louisiana. It does not end well for Bonnie and Clyde. Here's the reason I share that. At that moment, those two Self-described, the law is not getting it done. Therefore, we will. Here's what was perhaps true then that is never true now. God never needs our help. God does not need you. He does not need you to come and remind people of brokenness in their life by creating sin in yours. He does not need you to come with any posture of condemnation and looking down. You and I are not the law. He is. We've been set. I have no idea how that just happened. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen again. We have been set free for a law of love. Like it's the reality there when I think about this. It's the woman caught at the well. Famous biblical passage. It's out of John 8. We're not going to turn there. We don't have time today. There's this woman caught in the midst of adultery and these men come and they bring her out, right? They take her before Jesus and they start to pick up stones because they're gonna stone her to death. And they stand there and they look at Jesus and they're almost looking for this man. Can we kill her? Can we tear her down? And Jesus looks at these men and he says, you, you who are without sin, you can cast the stone." Whichever one of you has no sin in you, you can slander, you can condemn, you can, you can take the law. Every single one of those men dropped the rocks. Jesus looked at her and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go. 
sin no more. There was one person there that day that could have thrown a stone. Jesus, the one righteous person, the one who was the law, fulfilled the law, lived the law, knew the law, but he gave grace, church. We are meant to speak life to one another. We don't come in slander. We don't come and look down on those who have been forgiven much. And let me tell you, you have been forgiven much. Love much. And here's why. Because you can always trust that God is in control. Let's see that in verse 12. Jump back in with me into your Bible, verse 12. See it in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I love this. God starts out right at the beginning with this reminder. Right? If before is we are not the law, now, now we're examining we are not the judge. We are not the one ruling and reigning and overseeing. We are not the judge. You see God build his case for this where he says there is only one. He knows you don't have a tendency to get it mixed up. So let's be real clear. There's just one. And then he gives two examples. Lawgiver. Judge. Lawgiver. This would have been the one who gave the law. Right? Who created law. Think about it like if you remember your civics class. It's the legislative branch of the government. The law giver. What does the judge do? Oversee and apply the law. God administered the law. He created it, and he is the one who applies it, who oversees its justice. This would be, again, modern-day civics, your executive and judicial. God is saying he needs no help. The reason you and I never have to fear with, man, how do I know if somebody's saved? The reason you and I don't have to fear with, man, if I don't go and tell every single person, then maybe one day when I am in heaven, God will say, if you would have told them, then they could have come to heaven. No. He's the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate giver. He does not need you. He does not need me. Will he use you? Yes. Will he use me? Yes. And then he reminds us, what what is this role? The one to save and the one to destroy. What, What he's speaking to there is the reality of one day there is an ultimate judge. You and I, we can choose to reject him in this life and he will honor that request in the next. You and I don't have the power to to honor and to tear down. That is his. And how does he call us out to love this world, to remind people of the love that he's given us? One of my favorite verses in the Bible speaks to the character, speaks to the nature of the one who can save and of the one who can destroy. Speaks to why he calls us the only one who could actually condemn. Why he comes and says, who are you to ever look down on someone else? It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'll, I'll read it for you. The Lord, he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to Repentance. 
So this God who's saying, don't you go and judge. Why? Because I am judge. I have the power. The gavel is mine. He's pleading with you and he's pleading with me. The only reason I haven't come and brought ultimate judgment yet is because I want more to know me. I want them to believe me. Your neighbor that doesn't know me, I've fought for that. I've died for them. Go, tell them about me. Tell the world, love them in a different way. When they speak evil against you, don't you speak evil against them. Let them see the way the church gathers. It should be glorious. It should be different. It should be good. I've come to rescue them as I rescued you. Will you do that for one another, brothers? Will you do that for one another, sisters? And will you do that for them? And then James, he ends it with this stinging rebuke. He ends it here by saying, but who are you to judge your neighbors? Who are you to judge your neighbors? I love the way one, one scholar, he said, hey, if this was in contemporary English, here's how this would read. Who in the world, Christian, do you think you are to sit in condemnation of another? Who do I think I am? One forgiven. One whose sin added to the pain he felt on the cross. Who's been forgiven much. Who's been set free. Who's been loved to come and not extend that grace to another? Who am I in any form of self-righteousness to come and look down and create others as the lesser oftentimes because I'm internally insecure? Oftentimes, church, it's because you're internally insecure. And there's this, but at least I'm not them mentality. Who are we to look down? So what is our role of judge? What is our role? Right here, the reason we know that what James is not speaking to is the reality of there's no place for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to come to me and say, hey, John, I know you love Jesus Christ. I know that you are trying to honor him. Hey, can I help you? I think you missed it in this area. Hey, that, that interaction with your wife, the way, the way you treated your colleagues, Hey, that time where you were just hanging out at lunch with that group of folks. Hey, that time as you were trying to shepherd and instill a loving and gracious heart in your daughter. Man, I think you missed it in that moment. Here's why that's absolutely welcome. You see it in 1 Corinthians 5, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you Paul's definition of judge, Jesus's, and then James. Don't turn here. It'll take us too long. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. This is the apostle Paul talking as he's engaging this church community. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Church, we don't have any business judging those who don't believe what we believe. Now, now, does that mean you can't help folks see, hey, if you do this, this will bring pain into your life? No. But we can never sit in a position of condemnation or how could you or to be shocked. 
We don't go and do that to a world that does not believe what we believe. But do we help people inside our body? Do we help one another grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ? Yes. There's brokenness in you and there's brokenness in me. You are meant to judge that. Self-righteously? No. Graciously is one who's been forgiven much. One who comes with a posture where it's a soft answer. One who comes with a heart that says, man, I can do the same thing that I see in you, which is likely the only reason I can see it in you. Hey, I just want to help you. And as I help you, will you help me? You see Jesus talk about this in a famous way. It's Matthew 7. I'll read this quickly. Judge not that you be not judged with the judgment you pronounce. You will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What he's talking about there is the reality of, hey man, don't come with a condemning heart towards others. If you want to come and hold people to this intense standard, okay, God will remember that. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's he just saying? He's saying, church, that we are to come and first and foremost find the log that is in our eye, find our sin. And then upon, through self-repentance, once we see clearly we should go, and we should address the sin in one another. We should help each other. This is why Jesus Christ is zealous for resolving conflict. Zealous for it. Because conflict can start when people slander, when they speak evil against. And when that happens, what, what does Jesus want? Okay, if that exists, it may be true. Go and tell it between you and them alone. Address the sin itself. But as you go to tell them, make sure you first, on the way, stop and with a heart that pleads before God, man, show me my log, show me my sin. Why? I don't sit on the throne. You are the king, I am the servant. You are right, I can be wrong. Will you help me? Guys, James here, he's not saying, who are you to judge? So take a back seat to the brokenness and the pain in the lives of those around you. That's not what he's saying. James is saying, man, lean in. But as you lean in, remember that you have been loved. It's this truth. Christians should never condemn non-Christians. Never. But Christians must always lovingly correct Christians. Do you see that the focus is, is internal? Far too often the church, myself included, to feel better. I make the problem out there. It's their problems. It's their issues. That's what's wrong. And we become like a whitewashed tomb where the brokenness is on the inside. Anytime I try to make the problem out there, I'm proclaiming myself as better. No. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. He's come to set us free. Why? We don't make good kings. We don't make good queens. That's why he came as king. 
and he walked as a servant, and he died for all, and one day he will come back, and he will ultimately judge. And until then, as forgiven people, we are meant to go and tell the world about the forgiveness that he offers. Why? He's kind. He's good. He's righteous. And that's our mission. We are not the law. We are not the judge. One of the ways that I think that we can apply this in a strange way is when we, just, just us, like if just us Christians in this room, we never shortchange our repentance. Here's why, I'll explain it to you. We come, and with an honesty, we take our repentance Seriously, repentance, all that means is a, is a need for change. It doesn't mean we're, we're guilty and we're shameful. But what I mean by that is it's a desire to become more like Christ. You see, every time that I make that my focus, what I'm reminded of is my need for grace. Every time I'm reminded of my need for grace, I'm reminded they need grace. They need love. They need good news. They need truth. The way we come and remind ourselves we are not the judge is realize the grace that spared us from judgment. In reflecting on that, the other way, and this is more specific to slander, anytime folks come, whether intentionally often or, or perhaps unintentionally, they come, and there's the moment of what we'd call gossip speaking evil against you, church. Here's your role in that moment. If they're talking about a potential sin or active sin in the life of another, here's your response. Man, I think you're sharing that with me because you know that I care about you and want to help you be a follower of Jesus Christ. Scripture says, as I'm sure you're thinking through, man, to go and make that aware to them. Go to them in private. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted in the self-righteousness as you go. But go. How can I help you go? And if the person says, I won't go, then you gotta go for them and bring that person back. One of the greatest ways I know to end the reality of a self-righteous and condemning heart is to help people repent of a self-righteous and condemning heart. That is why we're here. But be doers of the word. And not here's only, don't be a judge, be a doer. Napoleon's this guy, and I'll, and I'll close with this throughout history, I've always been tremendously interested in. Like, he was small, yet did a lot. Right, like he accomplished so many things to where he, even in this moment, is this emperor, this one who conquered much, he did so with this reality of I will take the crown. I need no spiritual authority endowed. I will give it to myself. I stumbled across this section. It's this writing of Napoleon's. This past week, actually, I was listening to something, and they started talking through it, and I was shocked. Right? It's Napoleon speaking about the differences between him and Jesus. It's Napoleon talking to how he as a leader was different than Jesus 
as a leader. What do you see in this? Man, he was full of himself. But you also see this beautiful reality of the king that we serve. Well, then I tell you, and this is Napoleon, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions will die for him. The one who came, who is the ultimate king, who is the ultimate judge, how did he come? He came in love. He does not come to motivate you by fear or to call you by force. He came and said, love me, and that love changes you. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like Jesus. Jesus Christ was more than a man. This is Napoleon talking about himself. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, and my voice. Dude was seriously full of himself. Like, that's baffling. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Napoleon saying, I had to come and be physically present to motivate a group of people in this one time and space. Jesus Christ, unseen, so motivates by love throughout all time. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. What does Christ ask for? He, the king, the judge, the righteous one that we come and humble serve He asks for the human heart. He will have it in its entirety to himself. He demands it unconditionally and forthwith. His demand is granted by love. He even talks about the reality of how he he will be forgotten due to time. But he says, Jesus won't. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can't exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. And then he says, this is what the most intriguing thing about Jesus was, was the fact people kept talking about him, was the fact he changed the world, and we're still talking about him. He ends it here. This is it which strikes me most. I've often thought of it. This is it which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ, the reality that here we stand Centuries later, 2,000 years later, talking about one who came, who suffered, who was allowed to be slandered, who was condemned by the people he came to save, who, who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to God knowing, it's for them I will die. It's for them I will love. 
It's for them I have come. Church, that is our mission. We are not the law. We are not the judge. We serve the king. We are going to a world without slander, without condemnation, but with a heart of love is people who know what we've been forgiven of. And from forgiveness, we are sent. That's the heart of what James has been sharing. That is the soul of humility and submission to God. Let me pray that we do that. Father, I thank you for the reminder of this. I thank you for the truth of it in my life. How God, no, you don't come and you don't need me, you don't need us, but you do use us. How you alone are God, how you alone are good. I pray that we would be a people who remember that. I pray that we'd be a people who don't come in a self-righteous condemnation to others, but in reality that righteousness was given, it was never taken by us. We come and we serve May we be the most humble people on the face of the planet, not not in self-deprecation, but in holy devotion to you. May it start with me. May it happen here at the Springs. May your spirit bring that about. And then may it spread through this community and beyond. We need your help to do that. I thank you. You love helping. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, thanks for gathering. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship. See you next week.